Hi everyone, good morning. This is Seeking Sustainability Live and today we are talking about one of our most popular topics, Akia, and how to find great abandoned old houses in Japan which are still worth keeping, renovating, remodeling and making your own. And today we are joined once again with a super fan of Japan based in Melbourne, Australia. Tina McCarthy, thanks so much for joining, Tina. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Glad to be here. Now, last week we had the chance to talk to Tina and we were talking about one of her favorite places, Onomichi, and she inspired me so much. I went to Onomichi, had a wonderful few days, and you've actually bought a house in Onomichi. Yes, we have. I just love Onomichi, so that's why I thought I should put that photo up. Um, that's actually, I would just die to get my hands on that doormat. It's in a souvenir shop um, on the top of um, the hill at Senkoji. And every time I see it, I have to take a photo of it because I just love it so much. But yeah, I, I look, we really love... Um, oh, just a moment, sorry. <laughs> We, we just love um, Onomichi so much and we fell in love with it um, after our first bike ride there, which was in 2015. And there was something about the ambiance of the, the whole town that was just so gorgeous. And as I mentioned last time we were talking about Onomichi, um, that it, it was a place that had a lot of, you know, closed shops. It looked a bit tired and a bit run down. Was a little bit quiet and lonely but at the same time there were just these little glimmers of hope that this was a little town who was really trying to do something to improve and to get more people there and of course um they really started something with the development of the u2 cycle hotel um and the redevelopment of the the whole wharf area um to try and energize that area and bring people back and of course it's the gateway to the Shimanami Kaido um, at, at that end. Of course, Imabari at the other end is also a gateway. Um, so as cyclists, for us, it was um, a place that we just, we couldn't resist it. There was something about it that we were so drawn to. So um, it I, was I feel that too. I completely agree. When I go to Onomichi, I go to a lot of these Inaka rural towns but Onomichi gives me hope that they're going to survive, that there's enough young enthusiasm, there's enough entrepreneurs, there's a great craft brewery, there's all these things like the Cycle Hotel that have new modern appeal, but you also have all this tradition and uh, traditional Japan to enjoy. I just have to mention your beautiful kimono behind you. That's yeah. gorgeous. <laughs> Yeah, it is gorgeous. I have a, a very small but growing collection of kimono. I just, I'm so in love with uh, Japanese fabrics. So um, sometimes it's cheaper to actually buy the kimono than it is to buy a piece of fabric. So that's what I often do. But of course, then I get into this trap where I think, but it's a full kimono. I can't pull it apart now. Somebody's worn this. Somebody's loved it. So how can I possibly destroy it? So, um, but yes, I I really love them. And my thing is that I collect um, kimono or or haori jackets that that have um, you know the crane the orizuru pattern on them. 
because to me it's kind of a symbol of Hiroshima as well. So um, yeah, I'm just a sucker for it. (laughs) Yeah, and when I talk to uh, some kimono experts like Paprika Girl, Riki Okanda, she always says if you're in Japan, you can take kimono to a kimono shop and they'll make it your size. They'll Mm. add fabric under the arms or along the waist to make it your size. So if you love it and it's in good condition, you can do that. I never realized that before. Exactly. So what a great way to keep keep the life of a kimono going too. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of keeping the life of things going, that's the sustainable benefit of buying these old houses. Tell us a little bit about how you started looking for a house and choosing which ones to go and see. It's quite a daunting process. And then you're not based in Japan full time. So it must have been a a bit more hurdles for you, right? Yeah, it it was a big process. And uh, to be honest, I'm not even sure how it started. I think it was just our sheer love of Onomichi and thinking, well, once we've done one ride there, we said, I just want to go and do it again and again and again and again. And so it was a a growing kind of passion that we, we figured that, um, maybe it was better to buy a house there than constantly be paying for accommodation. But I think it was something that had always been in the back of our minds that we would love to spend more time in Japan and would we buy a house or, or something, you know, that we could go and visit. So it happened that we ran into some friends who um, they were actually friends of um, family who had bought a house in Kyoto and so we were really interested to find out what they had been through and uh, we had a, a long discussion over many wines with them and talked about how they went about it and how, did, how on earth did they find a place. And they, they bought in Kyoto where I think it's probably not quite so difficult to buy uh, an old machia, which is what they did. And, of course, many of the machia there are already beautifully renovated, so... Uh, it's not quite as daunting a process as buying a house that is unrenovated, which is what we did. And so um, they they told us also about their real estate agent and that he was an English speaker and uh, he was based in Kyoto. So we figured he wasn't really going to be able to help us because he was in Kyoto and generally real estate agents will will stick to a local area. That's their thing. Um, But it turned out after we had had some conversations with him that actually he was really happy to go anywhere in Japan and he didn't really mind and he realised that he was kind of onto a good thing by helping foreigners who wanted to buy houses, knowing that we had so many hurdles as far as language goes, not understanding the rules and regulations of purchasing and Um, you know all the nuances of of real estate in Japan as a foreigner and so he was onto a good thing really and he's he's now really developed this as a little business where he um, that's what he does and so we were really lucky that he was happy to come to Hiroshima as somebody who's outside of the country for us yeah the process of looking for places was difficult because Unless you knew how to search in Japanese on on the internet, it was really difficult. You could you could find English sites that you know houses for sale in Japan, but 
negotiating through those websites to the areas you might want to be in was also really tricky. And so he was able to direct us to some local places and local websites. And in the process of all of this, we started looking at the Akia banks as well and, of course, the Onomichi um, Saisei Akia Bank. And we kind of considered whether that was an option for us and we were really excited about it we we had a japanese friend speak to them on the uh, on the phone from australia to get more information but i guess what happened in the end was we felt that if we went through the akia bank there are a lot of um i guess caveats put on many of the properties so for example you may have to use it for a community use of some sort or open it up for the community to use it various points in time or you may never own the house you're just on an extended loan Um, you may suddenly find that the owner does come back and then you have to give the house back and you've done all this work on it and so there are a lot of pros and cons to them and it's a great idea I think probably for particularly younger people in Onomichi who are looking to start a new lifestyle and perhaps start a small business and they don't have a lot of funds. So uh, the Akia banks, I think, work really well in in that instance. But for us, when we weren't going to be there a lot of the time, it was kind of a daunting prospect to think, well, if other people are going to be using the house and we've set it up for ourselves, what kind of what kind of things will happen in the house? What what can we expect from this? Will we ever feel like it's really our house? And so we started to shift a little bit further away from that and looking at real estate sites. And we were absolutely astounded when we started looking at the real estate sites for some of the houses and how unbelievably cheap they were. Um, And and I think a lot of people see articles in um, magazines about uh, you can buy a house in Japan for $500 and that kind of thing. And, yes, you can. But as they always say, buyer beware. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of abandoned houses in Japan and sometimes they'll even give them away. But, again, uh, you have to be really careful about what you might be getting. And we certainly looked at quite a lot of houses. And, and in fact, even before we looked at houses, we looked at apartments thinking, Maybe an apartment is actually a good way to go because we're not there all the time and it's difficult to maintain a garden, it's difficult to maintain a house. At least with an apartment you kind of walk out and close the door and that's it and it's it's all fine when you go back again. But uh, is, this, is this one of the apartments you looked at? Yeah, yeah so that was in Hiroshima and uh, it was, you know, stock standard apartment with, I think, maybe two bedrooms. That that one that you're looking at with the nice kitchen um, is actually in Onomichi and we really fell in love with that apartment and it was big dollars but it had a fantastic view and uh, it was quite large. It was on one of the top floors of an apartment building and we actually put an offer on it but they didn't accept the offer and we were devastated. Uh, but... I guess in the long run we're really happy that they did reject that offer because we've now ended up with something that's really a bit of a dream for us to have an old Japanese house. 
So yeah, and it, I it, think it, one of one of the downsides, uh, if you're going to buy an apartment in Japan mm-hmm. or anywhere, is you've got all those high monthly charges, all yeah. the you know the maintenance charges. They really add up, and they could go up at any time. Uh, which is one of the benefits when we were looking as well for buying a house versus an apartment. But this one looks in really good condition. I could see how it was tempting. Yeah, it, it was beautiful. And, um, you know, it had a balcony on three sides. It had a wonderful view across the Onomichi, um, you know, causeway that you get across to Mukashima and Everything about it was fantastic, except I guess the price. It was really expensive, but um, we figured, oh yeah, maybe that's what we'll do. And but in the end, we we didn't get it, and and that's okay. So we did look at some other houses, which you can see the pictures of there. And so this is this is another house you were very excited with online, but when you went to yeah. see in person, you realized it wasn't for you, right? I was completely taken with this place and it was up on the hill um, towards Senkoji, fantastic view across all of Onomichi and it had two sections to the house. So the old um, kind of um, wooden style house and then this sort of 60s, 50s, 60s looking development next door and it had a bridge between the two of them that was a, a wooden bridge that was um, a little walkway which was just sensational. And looking at the photos online, I thought, this is it. This is fantastic. And, you know, we could have the guest area on one side and we can have our part on another and um, we have these wonderful views. And But I'm so glad we actually didn't put an offer on it and we went and looked at it because it was really in terrible, terrible condition. That's a picture of the inside there. Um, that's that's another house actually I I walked around the back of that house and I saw the snake and that was it for me I just went running so uh, but this the house that we had really thought wow this is just sensational it needed so much work and though the house might have been relatively cheap I think it may have been like nine million yen the amount of money it would have cost to fix the place up to being livable in any shape or form would have probably been at least another nine million, um, possibly even more. Um, there were the, the septic tanks needed all to be redone. Um, the water was uh, turn the taps on. The water flow was really iffy. You know, it wasn't kind of guaranteed. There were parts of the roof falling in. Um, there was a staircase collapsed, uh, windows fallen in. It, it was really a mess. So wow. I'm glad that we actually went to look at it. Mm. Now, you you mentioned your husband is an architect, you're a designer. Um, so you guys kind of know what to look for in terms of hazards, things which are red flags for you when you're looking at something to buy. Uh, would you say water damage? Uh, any kind of structural damage, like you said, uh, find out what the septic system is. Do you have a septic tank that needs to be sucked out like a lot of places in Japan? Or do you have a part of the sewage system, right? Like all those those uh, key parts of whether you're going to be comfortable living there, right? Yeah, and I think um, a lot of people say if you're buying a house in Japan, definitely get... Um, some kind of building inspector to have a look at it. But um, I guess sometimes even even their opinion of what the 
the value or the the condition of the house is is quite different to what we think is going to be an ongoing proposition. And so fortunately, my husband being an architect, um, he's he's pretty clued up about what to look for and can pick issues pretty quickly. And, and this place that we looked at clearly had a lot of issues. The water damage um, had really got into the wood in lots of places, particularly in the load-bearing sections. And they, they're the kinds of things that you need to be savvy about. Um, anything that's load-bearing, if there's damage there, then you're up for really big dollars. Um, and, of course, with the structure of a lot of the Japanese houses, um, you know, the I guess the, the load-bearing parts of the house, um, you know, the rooms are movable. We, we, you can move the screens around just about anywhere, but those, those load-bearing parts are the really important bits. And that's what we were looking for. And also things like this, which is the kitchen in that house and the cost of actually turning that into a kitchen that was going to be serviceable, had um, gas and or electricity, um, that the wiring throughout the house was really, really old with the old ceramic um, um, conductors inside the house. So the whole house would need to be rewired and, you know, that's a huge job to do that kind of thing. So when we're not there, it was something we just said, you know, we don't want to be doing, we don't want to be doing that kind of work. Some people will when they buy houses, um, but that was not for us. We wanted something that was a little bit easier to manage, particularly when we don't have, um, I, you know, I speak a little bit of Japanese, but particularly when you don't have a lot of language, even buying things like weed killer or, um you know, um, a household like a drill or things like that for that to fix things in the house can be quite tricky if you're at the hardware store and you can't, you don't know how to ask for these things. So, yeah, changing things like wiring was just way too hard for us. So, so now you're looking at um, the house we did buy uh, in Onomichi, and uh, one of those photos you can see lots of stuff inside the house, and. Uh, when, when you buy a house in Japan, very often it's a case of the owners just up and leave and they leave everything in the house. And when you buy the house, you get all of those things that they leave behind. So, um, of course, that's a bit of an issue uh, if you need to dispose of it because, of course, um, rubbish disposal in Japan is also quite a difficult issue and we we made an offer on the house on the condition that they actually removed pretty much all of this stuff from inside the house, but we actually asked them to remove it but donate it to, um, you know, some kind of charity, and that was the condition we set on it. And so they accepted the offer. That's based quite on common. That. That's quite common for uh, buying these akia. That's one of yeah. the conditions is that they clear out all the the stuff in the house. Uh, we we said we might be interested in some though. So they said, okay, you got three hours. Yeah. We invited some friends over who run local shops who might be interested in the antiques and we kept some. Um, but then we heard that recycle shops would then be sent over and they would take everything out. And uh, hopefully it ends up being reused because a lot of the stuff is in decent quality and we felt bad you know we yeah. don't want them to just throw it away so like you yeah. said as well charity shop is the way to go 
Yeah, that's that's exactly how we felt. That what a tragedy to get rid of it. it you know, it, it just wasn't our thing, um, and and we figured we'd like to just start with a, a fresh palette and uh, have every room empty so we could see what we wanted to do. And there are a lot of things in there we just didn't want, like old record players. We're never going to use a record right, player right. on an each. Were, were there any old gems that you ended up keeping? Like you, I mean, so much of the structure of the house is so beautiful. All the sliding doors and all the the engraved wooden beams and everything. Um, but was there any of the stuff that you ended up keeping? Yeah, that's just a couple of things. So um, we kept a, a kimono uh, chest. Um, there was also half a kimono chest in what they call the monk's room. So apparently it was the room in which the monk um, used to change into his robes. So we kept, there was only half of it, so we kept that, um, which is pretty cool. It's got a musical drawer when you open and close it, which I love. Um, there was also a photograph on the wall, which um, was actually of Onomichi, gosh, we, th we think it might be maybe in the 60s, and it may be that the owner, the previous owner, Okamoto-san, um, was part of the Lions Club. There's the picture on the wall in the, the modern room there. Um, and it, we really loved that. Uh, so we kept that and we've got it hanging in that room. Um, that, that room there, that, we call it the Western Room um, because that's what the um, real estate agents called it. We think it's kind of funny. Um, we, we actually think it should be the Disco Room because... Um, it has a very 80s vibe. The, the ceiling... Being yeah. like a velvet is just incredible. I've we never were, seen this in Japan. We were so intrigued by this because it looks like it's been lined with gold fur. And, um, oh, my gosh, when I saw that, I just said, what were they thinking? But, you know, it's kind of grown on me now and I, I just feel as though we need to have like a one of those disco spinning silver balls in there just to really set it off. <laughs> And but I that, love the old chairs. I hope yeah. they went to a recycle shop. You ended up, you didn't keep them, right? No, I really wanted to. And there was there was some uh, discussion between us as to whether they would be kept or not. I lost that discussion. So I, I thought they were wonderful. And I have to say when we first went to the house, that was the first room I walked into. And I saw those chairs and that blue carpet and the fur on the ceiling and a tatami bed. And I just said, wow, this is just sensational because I, I love mid-century design and that kind of, um, I guess, the Scandinavian look of mid-century design. And, and this was kind of headed in that direction. I really loved it. Yeah. Crazy it's roof. incredible because this house, you have very traditional elements. You have this beautiful Ngawa, which is like a, a corridor or hallway outside of the main rooms, kind of a buffer between the outside and inside view, right? Yeah. And then yeah. you have this modern, well, 1980s modern style as well. It's really interesting. Yeah. So the, the house was actually built in 1948. And um, we're still trying to work out exactly when the uh, front of the house with that western room was actually put onto the house. We, we can't seem to find too much information about that. And um, 
if we could work that out, it would be much easier to work out what the original layout of the house was. But, um, you know, it's it's classic Showa period and uh, the screens and the tatami and just the use of the, the incredibly long wood um, logs in it to build it is really quite extraordinary. So we've gone from one extreme, you know, with this kind of, maybe 70s or 80s addition to this beautiful shower period at the back of the house. It's fantastic. I just have to point out, I love these uh, moon viewing or garden viewing shoji paper doors that I've seen these in Kyoto. I don't often see them in Hiroshima. So these are very special. You can slide up to see the garden or you can slide and privacy and just let some light in and then slide down if you want a moon view in the yeah. evening. It's just lovely. I love it. It is. It is. Uh, yeah, we were we were really taken by some of those things because of all the houses that we had seen, um, I, you know, it, we, there was nothing that came even remotely close to what we saw in this house. And it was really a case of we walked in, we saw that Western room and said, wow, this is like a, you know, step back in time. But then, of course, as we stepped out of that room and we saw the rest of the house, we couldn't believe what we were seeing because everything else we had seen was so run down and trashed and water damaged and, um, you know, had so many problems. But this house was just so cared for and loved and we thought that was really beautiful. So when we first saw the house, we actually weren't even going to look at it. And um, I, I have the original ad here for it. And uh, let me just pull that up. Yeah. So um, as you can see, there was a tiny little picture of the house, which looked a little unappealing um, from just the photo with a kind of 70s looking front on it. Um, but what we were taken with was the actual plan to it. And when we saw that there were, um, you know, eight, six and eight mat tatami rooms with an engawa, um, so the engawa for people who don't know is the, like a, I guess, a veranda or a passageway that leads around. You can, you can see it in that tatami mat photo where we're holding the beers. Um, it's like a passageway that goes around the outside of the tatami rooms, um, so when we noticed it had these things, we thought, you know, maybe this house is worth having a look at. It's got a kind of a nice layout. So, yeah, we're so glad we did because we walked in and it was instant love and we just said, fantastic, this is it, we'll take it. <laughs> so yeah. It was a pretty instant decision. And I'm sure you've heard this as well as a lot of people, uh, a lot of Japanese people, even real estate agents, they just assume that you're going to knock it down and build a new house. Yep. And the benefit we found as well of keeping an old house and remodeling it, especially when you have so many beautiful structural elements, which are in really good state still, um, you can keep the big layout of the house. If you rebuild a new house, you have all these regulations about how big you can build the second floor and the first floor. But these old buildings, they have so much floor space. So that's such a big benefit of remodeling an old house instead of uh, knocking it down and rebuilding new, right? Yeah. And, and the other thing I think a lot of people don't realize is also 
um, there are a lot of regulations that go uh, with, um, I, I suppose, what you can do with the house in the future. And so um, depending on where the house is located, um, you may be in a landslide zone, um, which, of course, most of Japan is really. <laughs> you may be in a typhoon zone as well. Um, you may also have what they, I've forgotten the name of the actual ruling, but if you have less than two metres frontage onto the street, then that means that um, it has no vehicle access, basically, um, and that's how they consider it. So if you have no vehicle access, if the house falls apart, you're not allowed to rebuild it. You can do what you want to restore it and maintain it and keep it going, but if the house actually fell down, you couldn't rebuild it and also you can't add extra rooms to it. So there's some of the things to be aware of and definitely our house, um, yeah, has has certainly less than um, a two-metre frontage. However, one of our friends did manage to prove us wrong um, and we did actually manage to get a car in there. Yeah, um, and this is this is a big hurdle for a lot of places in Onomichi. Onomichi yeah. has beautiful temples, beautiful houses upstairs. So you're lucky that you were able to find a house with road access at all because a lot of these Akia in Onomichi only have stair access. When I was there the other day, I saw a construction worker with all his gear on, his full helmet and everything, and a huge bag of concrete yeah. and rubble walking up the stairs. And he did not look happy. So if you're going to need any work done and you live up those stairs and no cars can access, that's going to be another hurdle. You either have to do the work yourself or pay more to yeah. get staff to do the stair walk, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, as you can see, uh, this is the access to the front of the house. So unless you have a K car or a K van, there's no way you'll be able to get in there. And even, even getting that little van in there was pretty exciting watching the process. Um, He's a very talented driver. That is, is a very narrow road. Yeah. Very talented. Um, so what happens is that if you have... Um, this issue, and we've certainly faced this, is when we've thought about what do we want to do with the house, uh, what, what um, you know, renovations we might do. The cost instantly goes up because as soon as we say, no, there's no road access, um, you know, we've kind of been fudging it now saying, oh, no, no, there is road access, <laughs> even though we tell them afterwards, well, you need to have a, a really tiny little truck. Um, but it means that the cost does instantly go up because getting things there and, and even when we had furniture delivered, we realised how incredibly hard it is to get it into the house because there's a bit of a dip that you have to go down and up and some steep steps and this ramp. So, yeah, it's pretty tricky. Um, but, you know, there are ways around all of this that um, if you're creative, you, you can do it. Um it, it's of course none of it's impossible but you do have to be a little bit I guess adventurous um, and think about how you're going to do these things but the one of the other things also is that um, and people often ask us about this particular issue is that if you buy a house in Japan um, you know it's it's basically 
it's not an in, it's not an investment that will grow. It's money, as a lot of people say, it's money down the drain because um, in Japan they say that they build houses to last for 22 years. That's kind of what, what they say is the timeline of any house. And after that they're disposable. They pull them down and rebuild something new, and which is kind of tragic. But if you think about, um, you know, fixing these new houses up, um, one of the issues is that, of course, the cost of getting access to, um, you know, one of these really hard to get to places. But also, how are you actually going to do it if you don't have a lot of language as well, um, which is also incredibly difficult and certainly something that we faced recently, trying to negotiate how we would do that, even though we have an architect and a designer in the house. It's kind yeah. of tricky. Yeah, it is hard. One of the suggestions that Byron and Cody Nagy had is also to go and stay in the area that you're thinking of buying before you purchase, just to get a feel for the local people. How are you welcomed? And I thought that was really great advice. And one of the things that I've been fortunate enough to be at your house and your neighbors are fantastic and people are very welcoming, smiling. Oh, so Judith Scott, they were asking, are you cleaning the house today? You know, like they're so sweet. (laughs) And you want to be somewhere where you feel, especially as an international resident or visitor, you want to feel welcome. And there are places that you might not feel welcome. So having neighbors around who kind of keep an eye out on things and maybe let you know if if something's going wrong, that is, yeah. if you're not there full time, that is gold, right? Yeah, totally. And and we were very lucky to meet uh, the neighbors on the first day we we actually took possession of the house and. We were walking up this steep ramp with our suitcases in hand and this man came running up to us and saying in Japanese, I'll help you, I'll help you. And we were like, oh, who is this guy? <laughs> but he really wanted to help and he introduced himself and um, then uh, we were very, very thankful. And then the following day we were walking back to our house having been down the street and this beautiful elegant lady was walking towards us of course she still had her apron and work clothes on but she was tall and elegant she looked like a ballet dancer and she introduced herself in English and and said hello and you're the new owners my husband met you last night so we kind of became good friends with them and she has um, quite good English and he has a little bit of English and that's where we found the history of the house was that he shared what he knew because he's lived in that same section of Onamichi all his life. So he knew quite a bit about the house, which was wonderful. It was gold for us. But it turns out also that um, the the, the neighbours, um, she had a sister who collected kimono. And when they visited our house, she saw that I really liked sewing and, um, you know, making quilts for the house and that kind of thing. And the next day she turned up with this pile of fabric and said, I want you to take this. And I was like, I can't take this, no. And she said, please take it from me. I don't know what to do with it because my sister had over 100 kimono and I just have them lying on the floor and I don't want them, so please take them. 
So she gave oh, me this kimono, but she also amazing. gave me um, these little bags here as well, um, little kimono bags. So that, oh, they for me are a, a really treasured gift um, because it was a gift of such friendship and warmth. Um, yeah. And I, I'm sorry I've left them in, in the house. I wish they were here with me, but, you know. That, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful story. Uh, we have a good question from Nancy <laughs> on Facebook. Hi, Tina. Wondering, who are you thinking of asking to help with renovations, local building company or architect, or do you do some yourself? Good question. Yeah, the burning question. That's something we toss up all the time. Um, I think we, we've already looked into getting a, um, we've asked the real estate agent who helps us um, to give us some quotes and uh, we thought they were pretty crazy prices. So, we put a hold on that for a while, but then, of course, COVID hit, so we haven't done anything about it. So we're thinking now that actually we might do some of it ourselves. Uh, we have another friend who has a house in Fukuoka, and uh, he's pretty handy with a hammer and saw. So um, we're thinking if we can get him together and my husband, who's who, who's really great at, you know, handyman stuff as well as being an architect, that actually we can probably do things like the kitchen ourselves. Um, and, and really, to be honest, the house doesn't really need that much work because why would we change what is so absolutely gorgeous inside the house with these old tatami rooms and, the, um, you know, the, the shoji screens? Why would we ever change that? Um, we'll just leave it as it is. The kitchen, yes, is tired and it probably needs a little bit of work, um, but... You know, I think we can do it ourselves. Bathroom is probably a little bit trickier because we, um, you know, we need some specialty work there. But the reality is the bathroom is also quite serviceable as it is and quite practical. So there are only small things really need to be done. So it's I, probably... I think like you're showing on the roof, you've got decent quality roof tiles. You're not having leaking issues. That's major. Mm -hmm. Uh, the in interior, you can see the structure looks very solid. You can do some of the plastering yourself. That's, that's something I've done. I've done very little in my house, but I have done plastering. Uh, getting remodel companies, which are comfortable remodeling old houses, there are more and more now. Uh, when we were checking 10, 15 years ago, most of the places were very resistant to keep old houses looking traditional. They wanted, I guess yeah. most of their customers wanted to renovate into modern look, but we were like, no, we want to keep the traditional aesthetic, please. So we eventually found some very good remodel companies, but it, it you know, they are there. You just have to spend a bit of time finding the right one that's going to work with you. Yeah, and actually somebody also told us that someone else who had renovated a house in Onamichi said that they had actually used an architect and a builder and it worked out to be a lot cheaper than it was to actually use a, a remodeling company. So um, I, I guess we're a little bit undecided as yet, but we would like to do um, quite a bit ourselves. And, of course, having been locked down for so long in Melbourne, we've spent a lot of our evenings watching YouTube videos on um, how to re-wallpaper, how to fix shoji screens and how to do all kinds of woodwork. And one of our favourites has been watching um, Tokyo Lama 
who has renovated a, an old um, kominka in Ibaraki Prefecture, and uh, his his videos are really educational. So uh, we've kind of kind of been swayed a little bit in that direction. Um, one of the rooms, I'll just put this picture up. Uh, this one here. Uh, there is a room at the top of the house which is kind of this weird space and we're a little bit unsure about exactly what this was and this is one room we think will probably need quite a bit of work because uh, as you can see the ceiling on it is just some uh, polycarbonate and a bit of um, corrugated tin we wondered whether maybe, given it's got that kind of low surround, whether this was some kind of upstairs balcony or something at one stage and it's just been roofed over because it's actually on the other side of that room, it's actually got um, like a, an entrance window slash door, um, which is quite beautiful. So we'd like to fix that room uh, up into something that's a little bit practical. So that is one of the rooms that probably will take a bit of skill from us to um, think about how we change that back into a, a room that's quite practical. Uh, I, I see that as being my um, sewing slash shibori room. Um, and I had wonderful dreams of doing all kinds of shibori in there until my husband kindly pointed out to me, but it's upstairs. How are you going to get all the water up and down the stairs without spilling blue dye everywhere? And I said, well, we could get blue carpet, I guess. So <laughs> so I well, haven't won could, that one you either. Could build, you could build on an outdoor terrace so you could have a little yeah. washing basin or something. Yeah, we, we, um, we but the sure. upstairs, like you said, the other half of the upstairs is just stunning. And you've got yeah. this great view. You've got tatami mats. But this side of the upstairs is it's very odd, isn't it? It's like they were using it for just storage, maybe. Yeah, that it was storage. It had, um, in fact, the previous owner was actually the local um, carpet king and he owned the, the carpet shop in Onomichi and he had all kinds of things stashed in there and uh, he built shelves out of using the old carpet sample books. So they were really thick and heavy, so he would just stack them up put a piece of wood and then two more carpet books and a piece of wood. It was just it's very sustainable. I like that idea. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> uh, we have a, a great uh, comment from Sean. Sean writes, thanks for joining from Tokushima. Uh, were there any major surprises or unexpected hiccups when purchasing the house or once everything was finalized. I think this is a big concern uh, for people who are a bit worried about the language and legal hurdles, definitely. Yeah, yeah. so yes, there definitely were some issues. Um, once we had actually bought the house and signed all the contracts, um, we had to go back to Australia and uh, we knew that there was a settlement period in which we had to pay the full, full amount of the house and which we did after we return to Australia but then in the process of this they have to actually get a surveyor to actually mark out exactly where the land is and one of the problems is that with a lot of these old places they actually don't even know where the land starts and finishes and unless you can talk to the um, 
the neighbours and get some kind of agreement, you may never actually know exactly where your property begins and ends. So that became a real issue for us because apparently the surveyor went off and he saw the place and he took a look at it and just said, oh, no, 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 too hard, too hard. And so we were expecting to get settlement within four weeks or so and nothing was happening, nothing was happening and we keep keep being on it with the real estate agent and um, speaking to people on, on Amici saying what's happening, what's happening. And then it turned out he had actually never even been there. He just took a look at the plans and said, I'm not going to do that. It's too hard. And so we waited for months and months. And in the end, we just had to um, say to the real estate agent, yes, we agree that what we see on this plan here is where the property is. We're happy with that. And please, can we take possession? But there was a lot of toing and froing between that and uh, I know that that's certainly one of the issues that we had been told about can happen is if if they don't know, if, if the land is old or maybe the owners are deceased, you may never know where that land starts and finishes and you may never find out. So very tricky one to negotiate. That is really tricky. And I know even for our place in Hiroshima City, um, we had to have the same surveyor come out to, to re- uh, draw the map to exactly what was our property once we were going to buy it, right? Mm-hmm. And they actually went on the street and there were these tiny silver pointers which were designating which was our property. And yep. that was it. And then on one side of the house, they couldn't find the pointers. So they're like, but we asked your neighbors and we kind of, you know, decided that. Uh, between you and them, this would be fair. So there's like negotiation as well as, I mean, there's just, I guess the old maps are a little bit outdated or it was a real surprise to me that this wasn't as clearly laid out as we we had understood. But luckily we have good neighbors and they were willing to negotiate. So now we were happy with the lines that were drawn Everybody around us had to had to confirm that that was okay. It's a real group effort. <laughs> yeah, and and we actually found the same thing, and we were quite surprised that nobody else had picked up on where these little markers were. And um, it was only after we returned, we we were kind of clearing away weeds and stuff, and we went there they are, there's the markers. So it designated our property. Now this uh, picture here too that um, we're looking at with the stone steps, um, so the house sits on this very large stone wall and we have these steps at the back of it. And so when we bought the house we actually weren't even aware that we ended up owning these steps because they were part of the property but that was where there was some kind of, oh, is this part of it or not? In the end, they're the, they are a part of the property um, and they used to lead down to where there was an awesome cart um, from the original man who built the house. But the other thing about um, what I want to show in this picture here is these stone walls that are actually behind the house and what the house sits on, um, they can be a real issue from a maintenance point of view because uh, they get a lot of weeds growing in them, which, of course, can affect the um, integrity of the structure. And you have to be really on top of keeping those weeds out. So we've recently, um, well, two years now, we haven't been able to get back there. 
um, we've had a stonemason go in and check check all of the stone walls. But the problem is that stone wall that's behind the house is actually not part of our property. It belongs to the people above us. But they're old people, um, you know, we know that they're not going to do anything about it. Um, they probably never have done anything about it because there was quite a lot of weed growth there. So we've just taken it upon ourselves to say, it's okay, we'll fix it, we'll get it um, you know, repaired and cleaned up. So that's another thing that you have to kind of bargain, put into the, the deal and, you know, bargain with people to say, we'll fix it, um, not a problem, but you have to be aware that you're going to have to pay for it um, if, you, if you want it to, um, I guess, not have an impact on your property. Was it built in the traditional way without any kind of mortar? Was it just mm -hmm. rocks fitted together? Uh, no, it's it's actually got mortar. Uh, oh, there are some parts of it that that don't have mortar, but um, that what the house is sitting on has mortar. Yep. Because I've seen those in the rural areas, and that's that's quite a skill, and it, they do last for hundreds of years. But if you're going to have uh, earthquake or landslide worry for that area, uh, definitely like you had having a stonemason or someone who really understands wall building in Japan to have a look at it because that could also be a liability issue, right? Like if you don't uh, fix a wall, which is technically yours and it falls down and hurts somebody or damages somebody else's property, I would imagine you would be at fault for that. But I also imagine because this is Japan, you would also negotiate back and forth as long as, you know, it wasn't obviously just your fault and uh, the community would kind of fix it together. That's a wonderful yeah, thing about Japan. I think so. And um, that, that that's one of the other things too. Below the stone wall that the house sits on, there's a water causeway as well. And... Um, there are other houses on the other side of that causeway that back onto that. And we were really surprised to find out that um, one of the things that we hadn't thought about was that uh, people's kind of kitchen waste and everything flows into that waterway. Here are we thinking, oh, isn't this gorgeous? We've got a little creek running down the side of the house. Um, so one of the other things that we now have to look at, because we don't, we don't really want our waste going down into the waterways and eventually into the um, inland sea, we actually want to work out how do we actually fix some of this plumbing in the house, which may be a really big job in an old house like that. And even for us to put in a second toilet, which we have to connect to the septic tank that's there, they're really big things that you have to think about when you buy a house like, uh, like that, because septic tanks are expensive, plumbing is expensive. So um, quite a few issues that you really need to think about before you make that commitment. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And uh, having a, a sewage line is is definitely a perk of living in these old yeah. neighborhoods. Uh, it's exactly. not something you find in all old neighborhoods. And a lot of like the trucks would have to come and suck up the, the storage of human waste. And that's something you would definitely want to think about before you buy a, a container type septic system in Japan. Um, but yours is actually on the sewage. So it's just the dishwashing, the bath and the kitchen water that goes out to that common waterway. Yeah, so that's not too so. bad. You could probably add 
kind of a simple type of uh, drain system to make sure that no organic matter is is going yeah. directly mm -hmm. out or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it also uh, makes you think about, oh, maybe I should use more natural washing detergent, right? Because it, it so directly goes right out to the ocean. Totally agree. Yeah, we, we were quite surprised by that. But um, just one of those things that we hadn't factored in. But uh, yeah. So the other nice thing about um, the house, you know, I see we're running out of time now, but one of the other things I wanted to talk about was um, when we are doing um, some some fixing up in the house, um, we, we made a decision that um, this is a holiday house. So, of course, we don't want to be spending huge dollars on this because um, as a renovation because it's a place we go to for our holidays. And we had to think really rationally about this. And though we would love to turn it into something like those magnificent Kyoto Machias, um, the reality is that um, aside from the fact we don't have millions of dollars to do that, um, we wanted to do this nicely but cost effectively. So there's a picture there of my husband putting together IKEA furniture. And so we did buy quite a bit of um, furniture from IKEA and Nitori and places like that. And it's worked quite practically. Um, and it serves a purpose for us within the house. Um, but the other thing is, in thinking about this as a holiday house, people say, oh, you're mad, crazy buying a house in Japan. But a lot of our friends here in Australia have holiday houses here. And when we thought about the prospect of having our own holiday house here in Australia, in places that we might want to go to, we were looking at a minimum of maybe seven to $800,000 for a holiday house. And we were like, you know, are you serious? We can't afford that. And secondly, why would we want to spend that kind of money for something that should be a shack? That we go and visit you know and just spend some time hanging out at the beach if you can do it fantastic and enjoy it but I guess when we weighed up the economics of all of this and figured well if we're buying a house for you know anywhere between 8 to 12 million yen um, by the time we buy that house and we still factor in the airfares on top of that and compare the cost of that to seven or eight hundred thousand dollars, even with our airfares, that's an awful lot of trips back and forth to Japan. Um, you know, with a return airfare of anywhere between seven hundred to twelve hundred dollars. So uh, we figured it kind of made sense. No, it's not the kind of place that we jump off on the weekend and say, "Hey, let's go," um, because it takes a bit of planning. But at the same time, to me, the economics made sense. Um, it also made sense from the fact we were going to be restoring and saving a house that should be saved because it's got so many things of great value from a historical point of view in it. Um, plus it also meant that we could input into a community that uh, was striving to go places and do better. And, you know, my passion for Japan is that I you know, I can't think of anything better than taking people there and saying, look at this place, look how beautiful this is. Um, experience how people used to live in a house that, um, and I often quote Alex Kerr, um, who wrote another Kyoto and 
um, he, he said that, you know, why would we change the design of a Japanese house with these interchangeable rooms and screens that we can move around? Why would we change that when the design in effect is so perfect? Some people don't see it that way. I, I definitely see it that way. So, um, you know, that's that's a real value to me to be able to show that to people from a design point of view as well. So, um, yeah. And I love how you haven't put beds in, that you're keeping the tatami and the, the futon system. So you take out the beds when you need them and you take them in and put them in cupboards when you don't. And then you have this minimalist, beautiful emptiness of the tatami mats. And I love to see that in use, uh, even in a lot of families in Japan who have tatami, they cover it with furniture or bedding um, all the time. So this is something that I think coming from abroad, you definitely feel more relaxed if you have yeah. this open space, right? And I, you know, that's something that's really struck me too. Um, you know, I can I can see myself on the screen and I can see all the stuff around me here in this room. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff. But when I go to Onomichi and I sit in that house, I feel this incredible sense of being, um, you know, I, it's not doing. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. I can just be and I can just enjoy that space and enjoy um, not having to have stuff. And I really love that. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great feeling. We had a, a great question on Facebook just now, and I think this is really key for any foreign uh, resident or foreign visitor who's not a resident wanting to buy property in Japan. Were you able to buy property without being a permanent resident? Yes, you can. As a foreigner, um, there are no restrictions on you buying a house. Um, but I would say if you are buying an old house, um, first of all, as a foreign resident, you won't get a bank account. Um, I think you would have a remote chance of getting a, a bank loan of any sort. So if you are buying a house, you probably need to have the cash up front to buy it uh, because I don't think, certainly in Australia, if we said we were buying a house in Japan, we wouldn't have been able to get a loan for it. So you need to have that money up front plus the money on top of that to pay all the fees for the real estate agent, the ongoing you know, city taxes, electricity, um, you know, all the utilities you need to pay for, judicial judicial scriveners, all of those people that you need and, and translators in the whole process of this. So it's the cost of the house plus a whole bunch of other costs on top of that. So you need to be prepared for that. So aside from the cost of buying the house, so for about $80,000 you were able to buy this beautiful house. Um, how much have you had to put aside for month to month maintenance costs? Like, and then does the realtor, do they have an amount of funding so they can cover electricity and other like minimal charges, which are monthly? Yeah, so our, our estate agent is fantastic. He keeps a bank account on our behalf. It's an, we can't have it in our name, but um, we transfer funds to him and the bills get sent to him and he pays them for us. So um, yearly, you know, I think an absolute maximum per yearly per year would be Australian dollars, maybe $1,000 if that. Um, the, the electricity bills are really cheap. The city taxes are cheap. And, again, this is what we talk about is the, the economics 
of buying a house there versus a house here. If we've got a, a holiday house here, we would be paying, you know, the rates, the city rates, and a house valued at seven or eight hundred thousand dollars. We may be paying three thousand dollars worth of city rates every year, plus our utilities on top of that. So um, it's a lot more expensive. So this was kind of a cheap option for us, but also a, a lifelong dream to do this. And um, it's also stirring up, of course, my creative passions too. So. Um, I, I noticed you put some photos in there. I, I put some pics in of, um, you know, I've been using up lots of um, fabrics as well. I used to collect um, tenugui, which is the long scarf that people would tie around their head. And I have so many tenugui in my drawers and in my fabric stash that I had to do something with it. So, of course, when we bought the house, it was like, oh, my God, I know what I'm going to do with the tenugui. I can make some quilts for bedding because we'll need it in winter. So um, I've made it. It was beautiful. Good yeah. job. And did you do the indigo dyeing as well? Yeah. Yeah. So I, a lot of my friends say I, I'm the um, jack of all of um every Japanese craft there is because you name it, I've tried it. So um, recently I've been getting into shibori and um, just another craft I've tried. And so I've turned a few of the pieces into a quilt. So, um, And we use these in the house. Yeah. Gorgeous. And I saw that you even get, did kin, kintsugi, uh, putting together old pottery with gold uh, in one of your posts. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I, I have dabbled in that a little bit. And also, um, of course, Mizuhiki as well with the little, um, you know, um, fibre-wrapped, uh, what would you call it, fibre-wrapped wire kind of things and making flowers and shapes out of it, yeah. Wow, fantastic. Well, that is our time, and I think we we hopefully touched on some issues that international residents or even visitors think about. Uh, when they're thinking of buying property in Japan. Um, is there any resources that you would recommend people to get some more information? You mentioned Absolutely, some yeah. YouTubers, yeah? So a couple of YouTubers, um, definitely Tokyo Lama. He, he's just a goldmine of information. Um, he's fabulous. Um, there's Cheap Houses in Japan is another site. Um, good Old Houses of Japan. Uh, he has a, an interesting video. He doesn't often go into the houses, but he talks about the real estate ads. So um, that's quite an interesting one. Uh, and Akia and Inaka, run by Matt Ketchum, he yeah. was on the series uh, yeah. talking about the services that he has, uh, showing uh, really good condition Akia abandoned houses, which you can buy or rent quite easily. So that was a good one. There's also a really good Facebook group um, by another person who was in the series, Stuart Galbraith. And uh, they often discuss how to renovate or how to get yeah. more information. And hopefully uh, they will also watch this video and add comments here as well. Yeah, there's a the couple of the Facebook groups are uh, building and renovating a house in Japan. Um, there's also one about Minka, um, to re renovating Minka. So there's also a couple of books which I just dragged out. So uh, can you guys see that one? Uh, there we go. Uh, Morse, it's, it's a bit like a textbook really. Uh, there we go. 
um, and it's got lots of really great info about houses and how they were built. And of course, the other one, um, which I often talk about, is Alex Kerr, um, another Kyoto. He has a, a wonderful take on the houses and also talks about specific things such as the Tokonoma and um, you know the Ranma and Genkan and why we have all of those things in Japanese houses. So um, definitely worth reading both of those. Yeah. And we've we've had uh, some amazing renovators in the series so far. Yeah. So I'll try to put the the link to the playlist below. Uh, some people using a little bit of creativity, but like you are as well. I'm um, just trying to preserve that beautiful traditional aesthetic, which so many people are trying to do abroad, and we have yeah. it here. So why not preserve it, right? Exactly, exactly. And you know, when the houses are begging to be loved and and you know looked after by people, gosh, what an opportunity! Fantastic. So thank you so much once again, Tina. I'm gonna have to make a playlist just for you. You've been <laughs> a, a gold star guest. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great talking about it. Wonderful. Thank you all so much. Have a great day. Thanks, Tina. Thank you. Bye.